0: Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic
3: David Sims.
1: Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week, we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies.
3: In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of Blank Checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects.
1: Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby.
3: We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday.
2: The year is 1902, and the greatest threat to extraterrestrial life is the umbrella. The movie A Trip to the Moon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson.
3: And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 best films of all time. We've been going through different genres, highlighting films that we absolutely love, films that we feel like might be in a pantheon of being great, but actually aren't so great. And we are on the verge of a brand new mini-series, and we're going to do things a little bit different. The new mini-series, Amy, is Space. Space! And I'm very excited about Space and what that entails. And, you know, we're going to talk about this towards the end of the episode, but we're going to do this series in a way that's going to involve the audience a little bit more. You are going to be guiding us on this journey, almost like we are... We're like test subjects. We're like astronauts. We're the monkeys that they are sending up there. And I know you know a little bit about the dogs that went to space, Amy.
2: Are you saying I'm going to die? Are you saying we're going to get blasted off into space and I'm going to have I'm saying there's a chance.
3: Right there's a chance because we're putting our lives in our listeners' hands. They're going to be guiding us on our entertainment journey. So I don't know what's going to happen. It's an experiment.
2: <laughs> well, I guess I guess space is the great experiment, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think so. So we reached out to you about a week ago asking what space movies would you want to send to space? And we'll get into that discussion in a little bit. But first, I think we have to start our space exploration at the very beginning. Am I right, Amy?
2: We do. We do. The very beginning. Let's go all the way back, baby. Let's do the oldest film we have ever done on the show.
3: All right. Well, I guess let's... Je The year is 1902, a monumental year of firsts in the United States. The first college football game, the Rose Bowl, is held in Pasadena. A newspaper cartoon inspires the creation of the first teddy bear, the first wireless telephone device, the first movie theater in the U.S., air conditioning, and the first U.S. president to ride in an automobile. Plus, the Philippine and American War ends. Texaco is founded, as is JCPenney, Target, and Goodwill Industries. The films include... Snow White, Jack and the Beanstalk in their first cinematic adaptations, and Gulliver's Travels Among the Lilliputians and the Giants. Amy, A Trip to the Moon, tell us who's in it, who made it, what's it about?
2: A Trip to the Moon, the very, 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 very first movie in all of film history to take audiences into space. A Trip to the Moon is written and directed and starring... George Melius, the, I think, one of the absolute most important people in the entire history of cinema. Um, you wouldn't know that though if you saw the film because this is a time before credits. Now, on the surface, the story of A Trip to the Moon is really simple. Some scientists decide to go to the moon. They land in the moon's eye. They beat up a bunch of aliens or selenites is what they're calling them. Uh, and then they just like fall back to Earth and they're treated like heroes. So those are the facts of what happens in this film in its, like, epic 13-minute running time. But what we'll be talking about on this episode is that, to George Milius, this film had a second meeting under the surface. Now, you might be thinking, surely, surely we do not know what the number one song was when this movie came out in November of 1902. But actually, we do. It was called The Mansion of Aching Hearts, and it was by Harry McDonough. The song is about a woman who looks glamorous and rich, but is in fact miserable. So you could say in a way, she too is... She lives in a mansion of aching heart She's one of a restless throng.
0: The diamonds that glitter around her throat speak both of sorrow and song.
1: The smile on her face is only a man.
2: Isn't that amazing that we are keeping lists back then? I love that.
3: I know. It's so crazy. Listical culture,
2: man. Goes on and on and on. All the way back. I bet the Babylonians had lists like top five sculptures of cats. (laughs)
3: Well, you know what I think it is. It's like I, I feel like we always are trying to, yeah, just like I like organize what we've seen, and you know, someone's writing it down. From that, it's diaries. I mean, it really is diaries. Um, so excited to talk about this film because, you know, in the beginning of this podcast, we talked about films that were known for an iconic moment, a memeable moment, and this film. I would argue most people know the memeable moment from this film, which is the rocket in the face of the moon. It's this image that I think truly, whenever you see any montage of cinema, that is included.
2: Yeah, right? I mean, it goes all the way back. Like I have, I was telling you before that no matter where I've been in the world, if it's a film festival, they always have Charlie Chaplin, like almost always a Charlie Chaplin impersonator. This would be that second major, major image in cinema. And you know, despite however many times I've seen this image, which is maybe a gazillion, it was only this last time that I watched it when I started to think about not only the effect of that image, but the effect of deciding whether or not to color that image. You know, that's something that Melies has mm. offered. You could buy this film uh, colored for like a uh, double the cost. He like literally because it was just hand painted by like had a factory of like 60 people hand painting frames. And I realized I've almost always thought of the moon getting hit in the eye and crying. But then I watched a a different hand tinted one today and and what came out of his eye was red. And I was like, oh, tears are blood. And it's all up to like the tinting, man. And it got me thinking like as much as I know this film, there's still things about it that can change or feel active to me. Like, do you think the moon when he gets hit in the eye, is he crying or is he bleeding?
3: Well, I would imagine it would be like getting hit in the face with a baseball. I think you could get a little bit of both, you know, a little bit of blood, a little bit of tears. I mean, it's going to hurt like hell. And you may cut something there, too. I mean, it's a very craggy surface. I would imagine, you know, the moon is someone with chronic acne. So if you pick it as it, it's going to bleed. So, you know, not like it went deep. But I guess it did kind of go deep, too, because half of that rocket's embedded in the moon's face.
2: Yeah. Wait, so there's crying in Moonball?
3: Oh, man. Um.
2: (laughs) You know, I I think we're going to come back to that image of like, how does the moon feel to be hit in the face with a rocket? Because really, really thinking about that image as we're starting to go off into space, it's like, oh, the first time we made a movie where characters went into space, they were like jerks from the beginning. They made the moon cry. First shot in space. Moon is (laughs) crying or bleeding. They're both terrible. hey everyone this is
0: gil ozeri you may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit or you may know me from comedy bang bang i play dr sweet chat and ned bellinella the busiest man or irving Sardinus. uh anyway i just wanted to say how much i'm gonna miss scott now that he's dead what what do you mean he's not dead well whose funeral was that What? Who the hell is Gary? Wow, okay, well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th. Anniversary! Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do, and Scott makes me feel warm and welcome, and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. Bruba, go do. That's right, Bruba. They should go do it. Yes. They should, Bruba. Right? Yes. Shouldn't they? No. What do you mean no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Bruba, go do. Yes, Bruba go, do. Bruba, go do. That's right, Bruba, go do. <laughs>
1: Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.
3: You know, the other interesting distinction this film has uh, out of every film that we've ever done here on the show is it's about 13 minutes, you know, give or take, depending on what cut you watch. And that's really fascinating to me because... You know we talk about well what is a film and what is a short and what is this but this is one of those rare occasions where this short is treated as a film right um i think when we talk about buster keaton and we talk about uh, charlie chaplin we talk about their shorts but their films are the ones that are more in the pantheon of great film but this seems to be the lone outlier like this is like oh this is treated as a film because if you think about it, it took three months to make and it cost about five million dollars, like at the time, which is a giant. I mean, this is the Michael Bay Armageddon of its day. This is Armageddon nineteen oh two, and when you look at it like that, and at least I did, I was thinking like, wow. Yes, we've all heard about, oh, the audience got freaked out when they saw the train coming at them. But this really is telling a story. It's so big. They're doing so many interesting visual ideas and taking it to this, literally, other world that I can't imagine the excitement that an audience would have in watching this.
2: Yeah. I mean, to get into the economics of it, you know, Melia is at this time... He was selling his films to exhibitors, basically like by the by the meter. You know, like that was how you judged it. It Like, oh, well, it's this long, so it will cost you this much, like this many francs per meter. And like uh, that's how
3: Dickens was selling books, like by the word.
2: (laughs) Yeah, which I guess I still do as a writer. You're like, all right, all right, all right. (laughs) But um, the story is like he uh, when he first showed a trip to the moon to people that he was hoping they would buy it. He screened it for them. He was pretty confident that this was gonna go over really, really well. That everybody was mm-hmm. like, Yeah, you did it. But instead, um, people watched the whole movie and then they're like, Do you think you were crazy? This is way too expensive. We cannot afford your 13-minute movie. Like, who do you think we are? Money bags. It was it was treated like Titanic, really. They were like, You're insane to have made a movie this expensive. Which I guess Is a good segue to kind of jump back into the very beginning of Melies and his career. I mean, you mentioned that like famous image of the Lumiere brothers, like the train rushing into the tracks and everybody being like, oh, my God. Well, amazing fun fact history. That screening where that happened was December 28th, 1895, just seven years before this movie comes out. And you know who was there? Melies. They invited Melies to go. So he was there at that very first screening in Paris. And when he got the invitation, he was like, "Uh, moving pictures, what is that? Because he thought it was just like projecting images on walls. And he came from a magic background. So he was like, yeah, that's the thing we do. I don't see what's so special about it. We project images on walls, whatever. And he so he goes to this screening, kind of rolling his eyes, like, whatever. Okay, impress me. And then he wrote in his diary, like, No sooner had I stopped speaking about like rolling his eyes at people, than a horse pulling a cart started to walk to to him, pulled by other vehicles. And he just sat there with his mouth open. And then they showed the train scene and he lost it. And he was like, that's it. I have to get into this, this movie business. He went to the Lumiere brothers. He was like, yo, how do you do what you do? I want to get in on this. And they're like, well, we made a camera and you cannot have it because this is our technology and you can't go buy a camera because that doesn't exist yet. So Méliès, to start his career, had to figure out how to build a camera since that wasn't a thing you could go and buy. He had to figure this all out from scratch. So just to put all of that into perspective, that seven-year learning curve of like your first couple of months are spent building a camera. Then you're Méliès and you start making your own films. And really the only films that people are making around you are documentaries because just documentaries Mm -hmm. are amazing. A horse is pulling a cart and you're like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it's Melies who starts really pushing forward the whole genre from that beginning. He's making tons of little documentaries at the beginning, you know, one and two minute things. And he starts being like, what else can I do? And because he comes from this theatrical, magical background, he starts coming up with like theatrical ideas. He already has the costumes. He already knows actors. And he, I can't say that he like invented the fiction film. It's hard to say anything with like absolute definitiveness about this era because, most of everything we know is lost and you could find anything at any minute, some sort of like lost dead sea scroll that will change anything we know. Right. But from what we do know, he is really the guy who pushes forward movies as we know them today as like this fictional creation with imagination, with props and with inventing stuff like editing, making stuff, making people disappear because Melies was once like filming a car scene, doing a little documentary And his film jammed in the camera momentarily. And so he lost a couple frames. And then when he got the film developed and looked at it, he was like, Oh my God, there was a car there. And then the car was like gone. And he was like, Holy shit. I can do something with this. And he uses that innovation to do the stuff that we like now see here, like people poofing and disappearing his earlier shorts. We showed a bunch of them live at the draft house where he's like taking people's heads off their bodies and moving them all around. That's because he invented everything, man. Like, because he would shoot a scene and then he'd have them turn off the lights and then when he looked at his footage he was like oh that looks really cool dimming things like he is unbelievable i mean he's I'm sorry he's one of my favorite people can you tell
3: i'm losing No mind. i mean well and watching some of his work i'm fascinated by him and i think what makes him such a good filmmaker is that he is a magician or he has a background in magic because you know what you're saying is film is what your eye sees. And that's why everything is a documentary. Oh, we're going to tape this. We're going to tape that. But what he was able to do was create that illusion that magicians create on stage where I'm going to not have you believe your own eyes, or I'm going to put something in front of your eyes that you cannot believe. And that I think evolves film because once that is added into the mix, how could you ever go backwards?
2: No, you're exactly right. Like, if the earlier films were, here's what I see, like the camera is my eye, the camera is an extension of my eye. Exactly what you're saying. Like Melies with his like theatrical magician background, you know, having like the theater Robert Hodin, you know, um, in Paris, he was able to not just think about his eye, but to think about the audience's eye to like externalize this idea of imagining who's going to be watching your film and what they'll see. Not just like, here I am point of view on my camera, but like, I can think ahead of time what you're going to be seeing and how I can mess with that. Like, he did the very first horror film. It was called The Haunted Castle, and that's on YouTube. And for that movie, it was the first time that somebody even had a set. You know, it was like you showed up and you're like, here's the factory or right. here's the theater. He, he was the first person to be like, oh no, this is the set we're using for this and to create an artificial world for the frame of the camera. And he's also even the first person who use artificial lights because he already had them in his theater. So he was lighting stuff. People were just going outside. And he was like, "Oh, I can really
3: affect this." And and another thing that he adds to the mix is the very first tracking shot. Uh, you know, there's no, you know we think we take all these things for granted, and I think it's so hard sometimes to truly appreciate the artistry that these groundbreaking filmmakers had because we're so used to them. But this idea of when the the camera goes towards the man in the moon, like that's easy. We see that all the time. It's it's a tracking shot. You, you know, you either have a steadicam and uh, we watched it uh, a couple of weeks ago on the Academy Awards or, or you are on a track, but here he figures out, he goes, all right, what we should do here is, you know, I can't move the camera because it's too heavy. So he set up a pulley operated chair on a rail fitted ramp and he placed the actor covered up to the neck in black velvet on the chair and then pulled him towards the camera. Which I just love. It's like, oh, there's so many little like nuggets of our seeds of these things that have grown into these beautiful, you know, these beautiful plants. I mean, we go from that to seeing Dawson and Dawson's Creek using that wheelchair with Joey Potter pushing him because Dawson (laughs) is the director that we needed, Amy.
2: (gasps) Oh, you're exactly right. You're just exactly right. How can some men maybe so right and yet come to the wrong conclusion? (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you want to hear a version of Meliers explain like the story of his origins, it's actually in the movie Hugo. What I think is like kinda dorky. I should probably watch it again. But um, I liked it. It's yeah, I think I'm harsh on it. I need to chill. You Uh, know what? But
3: I I saw it in a very like, I don't care. Like there's some movies that you can go see where it's like I have no expectation for it. I was like, "Eh, what is this? All right, not bad. See you later. Like, you know, like I didn't carry any weight in. I didn't carry any weight out. It was sort of like, that was like a good burger that I stopped at at that roadside place. I'm never going to go back there, but I enjoyed it.
2: No, you're right. I think I think I hold like the kids subplot of that movie against it and the whole Aton okay. thing, which seems like really mm. weird and phony. But the actual Melies part of it, where you have Ben Kingsley playing Melies and like going through his yeah. whole life and having Scorsese have a moment to like really honor this guy and put him at the front of cinema again. I love that. So here's Ben Kingsley explaining his origins of like of himself as Méliès and where he came from.
1: I fell in love with that invention. How could I not be part of it? It was like a it was like a new kind of magic. I asked the Lumière brothers to sell me a camera, but they refused. You see, they were convinced the movies were only a passing fad, and they saw no future in it, or so they said. In the end, I built my own camera using leftover pieces from the automaton. I just had to be a part of this new wonder. We risked everything. We sold the theater and everything we had so we could build our own movie studio. What
3: I love about Millier is also he knew what he wanted so much, and he had a hard time figuring out, well, how do I convey that? And he was, I think, working overtime in trying to... uh, Just get everything right, which is why he becomes a leading man in all of his films. Because he says, uh, I have a quote right here. It says, the greatest difficulty in realizing my own ideas forced me to sometimes play the leading role in my films. I was a star without knowing I was one, since the term did not exist yet. He took a role in 300 of his 520 films. But again, he's a magician. He's a performer. He could do it. He could wear that beard. I yeah. mean,
2: gosh, I just keep running the math in my head. It's like we wouldn't have what we called movie stars or actors who even really are known by their name for another eight years or so after Trip to the Moon comes out. I mean, that's like the same gap between Trip to the Moon and the train station, you know, the, that first Lumiere Brothers footage. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how fast time is moving and like how much advancement there was still left to do. It, I mean, and what I really want to kind of say about this movie is. I realized only a few years ago how wrong I've been watching it. Yeah, Because I think this is an e- a movie that's really easy to watch with a little bit of like condescension. Mm. Like, oh, aren't they cute? Look at these like astronomers. Oh, they thought astronomers are going to be wearing pointy hats and cloaks. Like, oh, they thought aliens are going to be like that. You know, patting yeah. the movie on the head a little bit because it's true. Like people had no idea at the time what outer space would look like. I mean, we're... Half a century back then from even getting a picture of what the earth will look like from outer space. You don't know. Everything is projection. Yeah, I think it was, I was kind of watching it like, oh, how little they knew about what it was. And it didn't occur to me until like a few years ago to watch this movie with any sort of like idea that Melia is making like an intelligent criticism in this film. You know, that he's not just like, look at these cool space people, but he's like, oh, these space people are idiots, which is his point of view. His point of view is that these old guys going to space are big morons. And I just I think I thought of this film as like a celebration, but it is really a huge satire of the idea of
3: imperialism. You know, sometimes I'm one to miss a theme or two, but I did get that because this idea of like colonialization, like they just come there, they start making a mess, they immediately get out, they go to sleep. They are these they are these buffoons. It almost seems like a three stooges short in a way when they get to the moon and how they get in. And, um, there's an energy to it. You know, I think one of the things that makes it harder to decipher though is there's no close-ups, So you don't really get to see some more of the subtleties of these characters. It's in the wide and it's often crowded. And by the way, it's beautiful, but you don't get to, you, you can, I think you can look at it the way that you looked at it because, um, you're a little bit too distanced from it. It's it's very much like a stage thing, but people never get a real close-up, except for the man in the moon.
2: It's true. I mean, for, for his innovations, he still was only able to think of the camera as sitting in an audience, like sitting mm. in a seat and like watching right. people from the stage. And yet you're exactly right. And... and These guys are morons. Like, they're in literal dunce caps. And I think I just thought for most of my life, like, oh, they just thought those looked cool. Like, no, he's saying that these people are big dummies. Because, like, what happens at the the beginning of this film? All of these men are kind of just, like, fussing around. And they're throwing things at each other. And there's all this kind of pomp and ceremony. And they come in holding these like telescopes, you know, big phallic looking telescopes that they're brandishing around, which you would think would be like the useful thing they need. And then they pretty much immediately in this cool magic trick decide to turn the telescopes into chairs. It's like they don't even care that much about the science they're supposedly researching about. They're only in it for their own comfort. And he's making these small criticisms like from the beginning that these guys are nothing but like pomp and ceremony and taking themselves too seriously and being idiots, like everybody acting like they know what they're doing. And there's all this group think, like everybody changes their clothes at the same time. Everybody falls asleep at the same time. Yeah. There's not, not heroic individuals, even though he plays like kind of the leader of them, this professor Barban Fuilis, whose name I cannot say correctly.
3: <laughs> but they're just, a, they're just kind of like a bunch of idiot bros. What do you think about the technology? Because is the giant... Uh, canon, is that a joke or is that more of the Jules Verne influence? Because here's the thing about this film is Millier gets inspired by Jules Verne, right? From the Earth to the Moon, which came out in 1865, and Around the Moon, which came out in 1870. Uh, Also H.G. Wells, the first men in the moon, but then also this French uh, writer, Jacques Offenbach, who wrote La Voyage dans de Lune, which was a parody of of the Jules Verne novels, um, so I didn't know if like some of that stuff is him seeing what the future is or making fun of what the future will be because the aliens look so fun to me and they seem like so creaturey, like Creature of the Black Lagoon kind of aliens. Um, but the telescope seems so comical and the original, like the original drawing on the chalkboard where they're just kind of drawing out, like you know, it's so silly, it's so simple, like we're gonna go there uh i didn't i couldn't quite figure out what was stupid for comedy's sake or what was like no no we actually are embracing real science here
2: (laughs) yeah you're right you're right and talking it out it makes it seem even sillier to me that i haven't ever really appreciated how funny this movie is in that way because i think it is a, a group of both i mean like the history of fictional aliens, they're not even calling them aliens actually at this point. Like they don't even start using the word alien for aliens until I think like the 1830s or something like that. Oh, wow. Which is why he's calling them the Selenites. Like I think, you know, Selena is, I believe, the moon, um, space goddess, oh, yeah. space goddess. Uh, it's probably a Greek goddess that I should know. I'm blanking. But um, really, kind of what happened is like in the history of talking about people from outer space, We tended in fiction to only think of them as looking like human beings because that was just Mm -hmm. where our imagination was. And then when Charles Darwin comes out and starts like talking about evolution and science, then our fiction writers started to imagine aliens as maybe looking like something else. Like, okay, if there is such a thing as evolution, what could they look like that would be different from us? You know, like there was a novel from the 1870s. That was called Lumen, and it was about an alien who has, like, three toes on the heel of their feet, and they have, like, an ear that's shaped like a cone. And it was this early example of people trying to figure out, okay, let's, like, free our minds from what aliens might look like. Right. And so, yeah, him having, like, these kind of crustacean-looking moon people with, like, claws who, like, walk around on their butts but then put their legs behind their ears. All of these people are, like, acrobats from the Folie Bergère, who That's why they're able to do all these, like, crazy backflips. But, yeah, like, honestly— Now that we're still in this zone of like slithery insect, gross teeth, teeth, teeth aliens, Mm -hmm. it's not too far off. We're really into like these kind of lobster aliens. And he was like, Lobster aliens. He was doing it back then, man.
3: Well, yeah. And I guess, do you know if that was kind of a Jules Verne thing or is that a Millier thing?
2: You know, I don't know for sure, but I know that part of what he is doing in there. And part of why we can talk about it as a critique of imperialism is, he's, is he makes them have spears for a reason. Like he's having his people on the moon hold spears because he wants to kind of ring a bell in people's minds that this is how the French, who at the time were like the number one or number two colonial power in terms mm-hmm. of like going to other countries, bossing everybody around, enslaving people, you know, taking the country for their own use, that this was how people in France thought of the people. That 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 the French government was like invading and dominating. And that he was really trying to make a point like this is how we're acting. You know, we're going to places where because the people don't look like us and they're like holding spears or, you know, like kind of using the imagination that people had about other countries kind of against them as a weapon, as, as a weapon, like the weapon is a weapon. He was critiquing the way that audiences probably just shrugged off the fact that we are dominating people in other countries. So he's really trying to draw that line. Like, here are people who are a different color than us, who use different technology than us, and we think it's okay just to show up and just start hitting everybody with umbrellas and making them explode.
3: Yeah, I think this idea of space comes into film and TV and, and literature because it does allow us to look at ourselves as explorers and for better and for worse. And I think a lot of films really want to look at the best of us and other pieces of work want to show the worst sides. And and it's it's the best analogy for who we are. I think Star Trek really popularized that, even though it was already big in science fiction literature, to then bring that to the forefront in in film and TV. Uh, you know, this being able to talk about these really big issues that were going on in our society. Like you're talking about the French, Uh And bringing that into a place where people didn't feel so attacked by having those conversations.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, space is primarily in our movies about our imagination. And sometimes they take it like really realistically. I mean, I'm still knocked out by when we did 2001 realizing how much Kubrick was able to like really figure out what going to space would look like before we'd technically really, really, really done it. And here I'm still kind of knocked out the like a capsule kind of works like throwing a capsule into an ocean with a parachute. That's still what we do. Like that's his idea of a space landing. He's over 60 years ahead of us. And yet that's kind of what it's going to look like. And, you know, part of how we know that he's critiquing imperialism, that he has this whole subtext to it. Is in part because before he was a filmmaker, he was actually a political cartoonist and he did political cartoons for magazines in France and his cartoons were incredibly anti-imperialism. Like he would draw things of like a big guy beating up a little guy and it would be labeled, you know, like England and it'd be all about like bossing people around. He was what they called back then an anti boulangist Mm -hmm. Which is because there was this general, stop me if any of this sounds familiar in the modern era, but there was this general who really took over the imagination of France. And he was like this hard right wing nationalist, conservative, really crooked guy who seemed like determined to lead France in like an aggressive closed door, pretty much proto fascist way. And then he uh, was accused of doing some crooked double dealing and, like, fled the country and, like, thank God he's gone. But, like, Melies came out very publicly hard against him. So that's how we know a lot about what his sympathies were. But another way that we know that people of this time maybe got what he was trying to say is that a few years after this, somebody totally tried to rip him off and, like, remake a trip to the moon. Basically just copy the whole thing that they could. Um, They made a version that they called an excursion to the moon from 1908. Mm. And when you look at the stuff they changed, it's kind of like, oh, no, we understand what you're doing. Like when the rocket goes up to the moon in an excursion, it doesn't hit the moon in the eye. The moon just swallows it and looks like everything's fine. And he burps and it's kind of a joke. But it's not like you are attacking other planets. And then when he gets there, these people... They don't like destroy the aliens necessarily. The aliens are just able to kind of disappear like for fun and they can kind of reappear and kind of poof around. And it's a magic trick, but there isn't that same aggression. And then, you know, how in um, Melies's version, an alien hitches a ride back on the capsule and when it falls to Earth, the French people beat up the alien until it agrees to dance for him. And then they're like, amazing. And then they build that like sarcastic statue of the character that Melies plays where he's like larger than life and standing on the moon like it's a severed head. I mean, it's really ridiculous when you look at it. Um, In in the sequel, what they bring back with them is like a really cute kind of sexy ballerina alien space girl who falls in love with them. So they're making these changes that soften the story to give it more mass appeal because they were aware that there, there was a huge criticism in this film. That people were missing, maybe, but it was there.
3: Now, this isn't the only problem the film has. I mean, this film also has a lot of copyright issues, too. I mean, and payment issues. Uh, This movie doesn't become a big financial success, at least here in the United States, because uh, Thomas Edison's film technicians secretly made copies of it and showed them in the U.S. weeks before It was supposed to premiere here, right? Did you hear about this?
2: Yeah, it got straight up bootlegged. Like, if you love film, you know that Thomas Edison is a real dick,
3: honestly. (laughs) Like,
2: the more I fall in love with film, the more I'm like, screw that guy. Like, Thomas Edison, absolute worst. Like, if he had his way, film would not exist the way that it does now. But yeah, he was an absolute crook. Like, he got a bootleg of Trip to the Moon. He toured it all over America and he would even, like, if people tried to steal his bootleg, he would bully them to make sure he got paid, but he never gave Melies a cut. Wow. For all of the money that Melies put into this film, he actually never even recouped his cost. And so there's this tragedy that, in a way, I mean, I guess you could say that bootlegging this movie made it possible that there were so many copies around that we still have it. A mm-hmm. lot of Melies stuff was lost. though. there is a fair amount, thank God. And yet, like, because of that, has had kind of a hard life with making films. His career didn't last incredibly much longer than this for like a lot of reasons. One of them being that Edison forced him to basically work for his company, kind of like farmed him out as like a contract director and then insisted that Melies shoot. I think it was like a thousand feet of film a week for him, just like crank it out. And so he cut down on Melies's artistry. He just turned him into like a factory
3: and Melies wasn't
2: able to make films with the same consistency. So his whole brand identity took a hit. And then he makes a deal with Pathé. He thinks he can get out of it and work for Pathé. Pathé, they're also jerks. They figure out a way to kind of take over his whole production. And that's why he gets mad. He, like, burns a lot of his stuff, loses a lot of things, burns his sets. Um, Hugo kind of explains a version of this, which also blames it on the war. Because around this time, like, World War I is starting back up. They use the celluloid to make shoes for people. Like, a whole bunch of things happen at once. But it is when Melies disappears and is kind of forgotten and then is rediscovered, as you see in Hugo, like working at a toy story.
3: Working at a toy story. Working
2: at a toy store and being like this forgotten living genius.
3: Well, I mean, I was also thinking about, you know, this film, obviously it is a a giant, uh, you know, piece of our film history, but also I think it's another giant piece that we probably aren't thinking about, which is if you grew up and you're roughly in my age... Whenever you would rent a movie or even a DVD, you would get this warning right before a movie. Like, if you copy this film, you are in violation of a copyright. This big warning. You know that warning, right, Amy? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you could maybe draw a line to this film and that warning because George's brother, Gaston, he opened this uh, star film company, which is... Uh, basically, a company that was trying to stop piracy of his brother's films. Um, they were uh, they were prepared and determined to energetically pursue all counterfeiters and pirates. And they will not speak twice; they will act. Uh, so um, that was you know really that what's interesting. What's
2: going on in my head is no one sues like Gaston, no one fights <laughs> like Gaston. <laughs>
3: But I mean that's by the way that is amazing. And but I thought that was really interesting like that you could have something you know these these little markers and the fact that like when something is really good it can get uh, out there and it and that's where piracy does I mean look it piracy always affects uh someone right it, it is always taking the money out of somebody's pocket but it here it is not a
2: victimless crime.
3: Yeah and right here we see the beginnings of it and this film you know, even though his career is short-lived, it continues to get this weird life because they didn't know the film had credits. And then in 1930, uh, they find that uh, George left this letter with a cast and crew credits. And then in 1993, they didn't know that the film was even available in color or made in color. And they're like, oh, it was made in color. Then even in 2002, they found... Uh, the most complete cut of the film, hand-colored, like you talked about, and and that one was restored and actually premiered uh, the following year. So this is a film, one of the first films ever, who still up until about 18 years ago, is continuing to have new life.
2: Yeah, it's true. Like, if you saw some of the earlier cuts of this, you know, in the 80s or 90s, you would have seen a version where they didn't have the last two reels. That where the movie ends with the rocket falling back into space and then landing. And if you don't have those last two reels, then you miss like the really sharp criticism of like, we're still beating up the aliens and these guys are treated like heroes. When we know because we were there that they didn't do anything, that they showed up in space, they took a nap, they fucked around, they killed some people and they came home. And so that whole criticism of them being lauded, completely missing. You wouldn't have gotten any of that context in here. And so it's fascinating that this film can continue to be alive. And that, I mean, one thing I adore about it is one of the things they found is they've, like, found the original score that Melies wrote for it. This was one of the first films to have, like, its own official score that he wrote. Almost nobody ever used it. But Melies himself, like, played the piano when he did that first screening for the exhibitors who where, where he was hoping that they would buy it. And they are also, like, uh, they told him, like, Everybody's gonna get mad. They know we didn't go to the moon. They know this isn't a documentary. The audiences are gonna know you're lying to them. You can't do this, you can't do this. But we have now, people have like found a score that was written for this. Um, A guy named Urza Reed had a copy of it and that copy of his was found. And so like, you can go to YouTube and you can find this. Like you can find the closest thing we have to what it probably sounded like in the theater if you had the real score, which pretty much nobody did. This is the music that they played in the moment where where the moon gets hit in the face. as much i have to say as much as i love that we're getting these things and building this intact story i do also love like playing just random ass music to silent films or when like modern day people compose new music to silent films like you've seen the version that air that french pop band did right where they, they did their own score no oh it's so beautiful i mean here just for contrast because we played the moon getting hit in the face uh by Ezra Reed here's how the moon sounds when it gets hit in the face by air Like I love putting movies on and then like putting on my own music, like for some oh, I love that just like zoning out. It's wonderful. It's very wonderful.
3: Yeah, I found that issue when I started watching it on YouTube. I, it kind of popped through a few different versions of it to find the the look and the one that felt like it was the most full because I was watching a version where you couldn't even see the chalkboard. The music was very different. You know, it's an issue with all these black and white films where it really is. Uh, it really is a choose-your-own-adventure as far as what people could do to them or how they can be screened. It's 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 bizarre that a film could be so manipulated.
2: Yeah, for real. I mean, thirteen minutes long, and it, this movie can be seen in so many different variations, and it Absolutely. can even meld with you know the Smashing Pumpkins. Like we made it this far without bringing it up tonight tonight. I'm very impressed
3: yeah. With this. Well, good job for us.
2: <laughs> I actually rewatched that for the first time getting ready for this episode forgetting i don't think i even knew it at the time that it was directed by uh jonathan dayton and valerie ferris who then did little miss sunshine yeah yeah but this was their video and so i watched it for the first time with like this new more critical view of what melias was trying to say and then i was just laughing because it was like in the 90s version of this like the lady still runs around and kills everybody with an umbrella, and I was like, "Okay, that actually makes a bunch of sense for how I right. saw the world in the '90s." I'm like, everything is cute and magical, and I'm completely oblivious to all sorts of political subtexts of what's happening in the world. That said, ah. like, God bless that video because I think it is one of those things, like, that if you know, Big Lebowski hipped people to Busby Berkeley in our generation, then uh, this music video hipped people to Melies.
1: There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, this is Gil Ozeri.
0: You may know me as the guy who eats food over a garbage can. Or my wife's cute little companion with the ass that won't quit. Or you may know me from Comedy Bang Bang. I play Dr. Sweet Chat and Ned Bellinella the busiest man or Irving Sardinas. Uh, Anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss Scott now that he's dead. What? What do you mean he's not dead? Well, whose funeral was that? What? Who the hell is Gary Wow, okay. Well, I guess I want to wish Comedy Bang Bang a happy 15th anniversary. Wow, I always have the best time on CBB. It is so much fun to do. And Scott makes me feel warm and welcome and extra wet. So here's to another 15 years. Keep listening to Comedy Bang Bang wherever you get your podcasts. Ruba, go do. That's right, Ruba. They should go do it. Yes. They should, Ruba, right? Yes. Shouldn't they?
3: No. What do
0: you mean, no? Yes. That's what I'm saying. Go do. Yes, Bruba go, go do. That's
3: right. Bruba go do. Well, now we know where this film stands, right? in the in the grand Pantheon of films, but were there people I know we talked about how people didn't like what it was saying, and they had to kind of rejigger that. But how were the reviews? I mean, you would think this would be groundbreaking. I can't imagine anyone would be upset with it.
2: Nobody was upset with it, but I did pull a review actually from 1902 here in America from the Fall River Globe because I just liked hearing this person describe what a space movie was like and what it could be. I felt like it set a cool tone for us. Like in the words they use, you get a sense of how little they knew about what space travel would really be like. And so Mm -hmm. it was wonderful just to read this review and kind of put myself back in the headspace of being an audience member in 1902. So with that in mind. The Fall River Globe uh, from Massachusetts, December 1902. They call it a fantastical and spectacular production arranged and photographed in London. They get that wrong. Lots of stuff getting wrong already. Uh, by far the most elaborate moving picture ever shown in the city. The picture opens with the scene showing the wise men discussing the trip to the moon. And I love that they're wise men. There's Mm. no sense of like a criticism in here. Um, This is followed by the construction of the gigantic gun and projectile in which the trip is to be made. The star, the journey in midair, and the arrival are all shown with startling effect. The ship breaks through the crust of the moon. I like that the moon had a crust in our imagination. And it speeds into its bowels. It has bowels too. Here, the discoverers alight and are much excited at the strange sights which confront them. The first night of the moon is shown, the sudden awakening amid a tremendous snowstorm, their discovery of strange planets and of combustible natives who explode when struck. I like that because it kind of blames the the natives exploding on themselves. Uh, The wise men are pursued by the inhabitants of the moon who capture them and bring them before council. They are sentenced Mm -hmm. to death, but escape. That doesn't really happen, right? They don't get sentenced to death. They just get yelled at. Um, They return to their gunship and make their departure the trip to the moon is both novel and interesting. I guess it hadn't occurred to me until I read that how much they thought of going to space as a gun.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: You know, that you're just getting blasted.
3: I like that, yeah.
2: But I guess you are getting blasted, but I don't know. I've, I've always thought of rockets and guns as such different things. So it was interesting to be reminded that in the original conception, they weren't.
3: Yeah, I, I think this, again, this idea of like what we take for granted and and how we see things now is so interesting to it's hard. It's just simply hard to put yourself back in those original shoes of people because we've, our whole lives have been exposed to it. I think it was the first movie I've ever seen was Star Wars. So, you know, it's like that idea that you are, it's, it's, just in my blood, it's in my bones, you know?
2: Yeah, you're right. And it was that kind of lens when I was watching A Trip to the Moon this time that made me really sad because thinking about it as like a kind of anti-military film from the beginning. The idea that their weapons, these umbrellas, hit the planet and become mushrooms. Like they have a chance to become native. You know, in the right. sense of like growing from the soil there and to like incorporate with the world. And they decide not to do that. They decide to beat it up. And that to me, one of the most famous images of this film is when like, you know, the lady in the moon shows up and Saturn shows up and he's like grimling at grimacing at them. And all these people in the stars show up and the beauty of space that Melies shows like the literal beauty because he's picking beautiful girls to be right. in space that's the thing that the explorers never see because they're asleep like they miss it all you know they go to space and they don't even see the beautiful things that we see yeah so I got really emo watching this ah can you I tell I like
3: that no I love that I'm like oh, you kind of got me there too <laughs>
2: So I guess that's the lesson. As we go into the world, pay attention. Don't be a dummy. Don't beat up people first thing. And, like, really look and observe and think if yeah. there's a different thing your umbrella can be used for.
3: Well, always, always, always let yourself be a guest in a strange world. Don't try to take it over. I mean, try to take it over. But, I mean, I think that could be said for, you know, I think I've gone back to this uh, dinner analogy a few times on the show. But the idea, like, just go over and try it. Just try it. Don't don't go in the kitchen try to cook up your own thing. Enjoy, enjoy the trip. Amy, I would normally ask you, would you send this film to space? Now, I do want to know your answer to this, but I also want to reveal something that is very sad. Oh, no. uh, because the premise of this show, you know this premise, that we are going to send uh, our list of 100 films to space. Unfortunately, in 2021, this film is going to be sent to space with... A thousand other cinema classics.
2: Whoa, really?
3: What, yes. What? The, who, told, uh, who took our idea? The Peregrine mission. Um, it will oh, be. Some uh,
2: fancy scientists think they can take our mission. That's right.
3: The first manned uh, or the first commercial spaceship uh, exploration, the Peregrine. Uh, they are going up. They're doing a bunch of stuff. And one of the things is they're taking a micro SD card. And, That's what I wanted to do. Yep. And it's they, protected in a cone shaped sealed aluminum capsule. And uh, they have a thousand cinema classics on this. Uh, a trip to the moon is going to be one of them. So they have 900 more films than we do. Eventually. Wait, do we
2: get any say in this? We should try to talk to them. Are they putting good Goodfellas in space because that's a bad idea?
3: we I've been looking very hard to find the actual list, and I have not yet been able to find it. But a 1,000 films, I think we could probably come to a consensus on a 1,000 films. I mean, a 1,000 is... I mean, maybe we should just hold out and be like, we're going to pick the best 100 so we don't want to waste the aliens' time.
2: Yeah, also, if I was an alien and I saw A Trip to the Moon, I'd also be like, these people are jerks.
3: Well, I think a lot of the films that we're sending to the moon might show them that... Earth is not probably the best place for them to be hanging out. Uh, We should really
2: think about this. Most films we make don't show Earth in the greatest light, man. I
3: know, I know. And who's picking them? That's the other thing. The the VLC team. I don't know who the VLC team is. Um, Yeah, who
2: are they? We need to find these people. I would like to meet them. I know I sound hostile. I will meet them with a lovely, lovely conversation. I want to know.
3: Listeners, please help us. Please uh, help us uh, figure this out. Uh, But Amy, you know, now that all bets are off, ultimately— um, you know, this is going to the moon, but would we put it on our list? Would we put it on our list?
2: Honestly, I think I would because I oh, have a yeah. really hard time thinking of anything else with this much scope. I agree. And you know that when we were wrestling with the original list, it was very hard for me. And I had, I have not conceded the point of taking intolerance off the original list because mm-hmm. I like the early, ho- I, I like having something representing that entire decade still. If we don't, if we take intolerance off, we have nothing representing the 19 teens. But it and that would that would have been our earliest film anyways. We would have gone straight to like Chaplin. Mm-hmm. Um that said, it would help to at least have a film from nineteen oh two that shows the ambition and scale of everything pre Hollywood. You know, and honestly, it makes me think about what our film history would look like if World War One hadn't happened and people like Melius have been able to kind of continue on working if they could have. You know, I feel like Hollywood became Hollywood because we kind of just jumped in while everybody else was on fire and it helped. But like, there's just such amazing stuff happening in France, you know, way before we were doing it when we were just stealing things and being Thomas Edison. Yeah. So I would like to honor that.
3: I, well, look, you said it right. Uh, I would like to also acknowledge and honor this film because it really is a special, beautiful film. And I know I have a a very complicated uh, relationship with silent films, but, uh, you know, Thirteen minutes—that hits me right about right for me. Uh, Thirteen minutes silent is gonna get on that list over a lot of other things. Uh, but no, it's it's like Jules Verne; it has that kind of this beauty of this knowledge. I mean, uh, bef- way before its time, and and I think we feel it with Kubrick as well. Like this is the this represents so much. I mean, a blockbuster, uh, a complete reimagining of what film could possibly be. And uh, there's a reason why this clip is played with every film retrospective, because it is uh, a seminal work. So absolutely get it to space. And as we're talking about getting that to space, we are actually going to be talking about space. And we talked about this in the beginning of the show. We want to do things a little bit differently this series. We're going to try some stuff out. You know, we don't want to stay in our same paths at all times. We want to make this more of a conversation with you. And we were talking about doing a mini series about space when we reached out on all of our different social channels and said, what would be the film about space that you would send to space? And there's been some really interesting answers, answers that I didn't expect. And Answers that I was pleasantly surprised to see, and uh, we kind of want to go through this and talk about how we'll be developing this new miniseries, really, truly, based on what you all want us to be talking about.
2: Yeah, it's true. We got a lot of really great suggestions, and I think we got a lot of similar suggestions. You know, it felt like I, I felt like space movies is such a big, 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 big topic. Absolutely, and yet it felt like there were probably like. Eight, eight to 10 movies that people really consistently said, you know, and I kind of want to go through those in particular and like figure out what we should do and like kind of what we're looking for. Because what really struck me when we were looking at this list of movies we were being suggested is how different they all are. Like they kind of cover different aspects of space, right? There's ones that are sort of more built in the world of like futuristic stuff, dreams, inventions. How would this go? Like what do we picture space being like? Kind of like how Trip to the Moon was in its day. There's movies that are more like scientific and like technical. Movies that are about like the cool hard work it takes to get this done. Right. There's movies that are about like aliens. You know, like, uh, are we going to be nice to aliens? Are aliens going to be nice to us? Can we get along? Is there harmony in the future? There's movies where there aren't aliens. You know, there's movies where it's all just like us battling kind of Epic questions of the beyond. I mean, there's so many things to cover when you do space movies. And I I, I don't know. I kind of want to try to see if we can cover all of those quadrants, but there's just so many good choices. And we're probably not doing space jam, right?
3: No. Well, Space Jam, first of all, doesn't take place in space. It takes place inside the uh, the, the, the molten center of the earth. Um, or at least that's I how get they pull. Away with that. I mean, look, there is a theme park in space. We know that, uh, run by Danny DeVito. But uh, when Michael Jordan is pulled in through the golf course, that's into the Earth, the core of the Earth. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, I don't know. I don't know where Space Jam 2 takes place, but I... I, Well, I kind of do. I can't talk about it. Um, yeah.
2: You can't even tell me?
3: No. I'll tell you off air. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, no Space Jam right now. Even though space is in there, it's not really... It doesn't count. And, and, you know, we were talking about, like, this idea, too, of, you know, aliens coming to Earth, that's not a space film. Um, but, you know, we could have a movie like, uh, I love that documentary about uh, the Apollo space mission that they just recently released. Uh, one oh, of the yeah. most amazing uh, films I'd seen from the standpoint of they got all this footage and it was just lost for such a, a long period of time. Let's... Maybe go through, you and I, I'll give you a couple that I think we should not do, and you can yay or nay them. You know, I want you to share them with me, too. We go back and forth. All right? Okay. So first of all, I'm going to say Space Cowboys, the Tommy Lee Jones, Clint Eastwood movie. That can go <laughs> off the list. We don't need that. We don't need to talk about that. Right. No. Gone. Okay. That's gone. Um, all right. Let me say uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. But cult that just, movie. Are they
2: even in space at night?
3: I believe that is a Aliens to Earth. So it's out of the conversation for that. Um, I'm also going to say space truckers. uh, Tune into How Did This Get Made. By the way, if you want to hear about a whole episode on Space Jam, just tune into How Did This Get Made. We did it. Uh, We did it in Chicago. Um, All right. So now I want to bring up this one. And this would be the first kind of bucket of, should we even talk about these? Sequels to space films. So I'm talking about Moonraker. Wrath of Khan, Empire Strikes Back, two thousand and ten—the year we make contact. I'm going to put Planet of the Apes in this mix as well, uh, even though it's. Does
2: that count even if it's? Uh,
3: I mean, it's a little. All right, well, we'll we'll put Planet of the Apes on the side, and I'll say, oh, Planet of the Apes. Technically, it's sci-fi. It's not really a space movie. All right, Planet of the Apes. Maybe is gone. we'll
2: do a dystopian segment
3: someday. All right, I like that. Um, and then. I'll also add Thor Ragnarok to that list, and um, I feel like that those are the ones. And the ones Guardians that I've seen. of the Galaxy. Oh yeah, I mean, and Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy. So what do we think about this? Like these are sequels. These are movies that take place in space. They are, you know, good films, obviously, but uh, but they're not. Are they? Are they what we're talking about? I don't know.
2: I'm, I'm gonna say no. Okay. I mean, I am I am tempted to do Wrath of Khan. I like that. We did well, just have a really good talk about that on the
3: Star Trek podcast. That's though. where my hesitation was, too. If you want to hear Amy and I talk about Star Trek to Wrath of Khan, you can listen to the pod directive uh, co-hosted by Tani Newsom and Paul F. Tompkins, and we get into it. So I feel like that is, I didn't want to go there, but now I wanted to throw one at you that maybe bucks the trend. Would you talk about Galaxy Quest?
2: You know... I've never even seen Galaxy Quest, and I've always what? felt really insane that I haven't.
3: Oh my goodness! All right, well, I'm going to say that Galaxy Quest gets on our short list. All okay. right, we haven't decided it yet, but all right. So a lot just of people for...
2: suggested Galaxy Quest, and oh, I've been—I'm yes. really curious to see it. I almost feel like I've been saving seeing it in case we ever did it on the show.
3: Ooh, interesting. Kind of like a, me and, a, and Louise. Yeah. I have a very storied history with Galaxy Quest. Um, mm-hmm. All right, so. Uh, all right, that's good. All right, so we're get, we're, we're knocking down some of this list yeah. a little bit. You want to throw some at me that you uh, that you feel like we should nix or yeah? Elevate? Well, I have yeah. to
2: admit, I'm really frustrated because I was really, like, I went looking to see if I could find many space movies that were directed by women, mm-hmm. and I couldn't. I really couldn't. It was it was surprising because I think of female characters as defining most of the space films that I love. Like so many space movies are centered on a cool female, and yet, like. Claire Denis did a movie called High Life a couple of years ago that I liked, but I don't I wouldn't be a candidate, I think, for this. And then um, I mean, we could do Doris Doris Wishman. She was like kind of a nudie filmmaker. She did a movie mm. called Nude on the Moon, or it's also known as Topless Moon Queen, um, where there's like nudity on the moon. I didn't think that would make it either. She's like okay, kind of a sure. buddy of Russ Mayer, like
3: probably. Not. Okay, got it, yeah.
2: Um You know, one of the movies that came up a lot that I was really happy to see was Solaris. Yeah, the Tarkovsky film. Like to me, there's the original and there's the Clooney. I feel like the the original is a very strong contender for something that's like kind of capturing the beauty and emotional inner scape of space.
3: I like that. All right, I, I want to put I, that on the short list. All right, because yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. And because Solaris kind of falls into this world, and I, I, I have not seen it, but in my mind, it falls into this other category that we have a lot of suggestions of. Uh, Films like Gravity, Interstellar, Contact, Sunshine, like this kind of more of a um,
2: philosophical,
3: philosophical space film. Yeah, I I would even maybe even put Moon in in there as well, even though Moon is a little bit maybe more popcorn, even though that's a, you know, a tricky line to walk.
2: Yeah, those that seems to be a. I think a category we're going to have to figure, really figure out what we're doing. Because there's arguments to be doing all of them. Like, Contact yeah. had a ton of love. I think there's a yes. lot of love for Contact. And that one seemed really strong. A very good contender to me. I love Sunshine, even though I think the third act is a mess. The mood of Sunshine, to me, is... is That's the space movie that I think about the most. That and Aniara, which I didn't put on my list, but that's a space movie that just came out, like, last year. And if you want to see a space movie that, like... Is so imaginative and also leaves you completely gutted. That's, I can't re- recommend Aniara enough. Like, absolutely, Ooh, absolutely. I don't
3: you know anything about that.
2: Oh, 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 you have to go. S- I mean, if you ever want to just be in a mood, I would watch yeah. Aniara. It's amazing and so inventive. It's, All it's right. dazzling.
3: All right, I'm going to knock off a couple more here, just okay. kind of whip them out at you. 2010, the year we make contact. No, we already are sending no, 2000. Bad. Yeah, that's garbage. Yeah. Uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a valiant try, but I think a, a, a swing and a miss as far as yeah. uh, an adaptation. Um, Dune. Now, I wouldn't be opposed to the new Dune, but I mm. don't think the old Dune uh, cuts it, and I haven't seen the new Dune yet. Yeah. Okay, great. So Dune's off the list. Stargate, off the list, right?
2: Yeah. Um, there was a lot of love for Dark Star, the John Carpenter movie where an alien Ooh. is a beach ball. But I, I don't think that, I don't think so. I, don't, I don't, okay. don't think it's the Carpenter I want to put up.
3: Well, you know, I mean, we are talking about another classic. I mean, I think of, I don't know what you said. Carpenter it made me think of Alien. Alien definitely got put on the yeah. list. Alien seems to me like, uh, an interesting one, but I'd also say to the audience, like alien or aliens. Mm-hmm. But We maybe, did a cannon
2: about this. That was a brutal fight.
3: Really? See, like yeah. I, I think I would err more on the side of Alien, but I don't know. I mean, but I love them both. They're both very different in a weird way. Why I like Alien is because it's Ridley Scott, and I do feel like we're going to have some James Cameron representation already uh, on this list. Yeah. But again, you know, I don't want to make it like that. No, um, I mean,
2: I go back and forth on it. Like I think Alien is. Technically the more like groundbreaking significant film. I mm-hmm. personally prefer Aliens, because I think Aliens gives us the Ripley that I that we love. Like yes. when we think of Ripley, right. we're actually thinking of that Ripley and not the Alien Ripley, I believe.
3: I one million percent agree with you. It's very hard to kind of separate the two. Yeah. I mean there's so much stuff. I love aliens. I love aliens. Yeah. Um, that said,
2: I'd probably fall more on the line of doing alien than okay. aliens.
3: Okay. But All that right. would mean uh, we're
2: definitely killing Blade Runner, and that's fine by me.
3: Oh, wow. Interesting. Right. Well, let's, let's kind of hit a couple more of these, like, uh, just easy no's. Um, Flash Gordon. Right? Flash Gordon, easy yeah, no? Yeah, we can get rid of that. I like it. Go. It's campy. It's fun. But it's not, it doesn't feel like it belongs. It's, I feel like I don't even know if it's worthy of that much of a breakdown. It's fun, but it's, you know. Yeah. Um, space camp- series is
2: fun. Yeah.
3: Oh, yeah. Very fun. I love that. Uh, space Camp. We can lose Space Camp, right? We can lose right.
2: Space Camp. We, oh, um, Chubby young Joaquin is really
3: cute. I, I mean, look, I love Space Camp growing up. It was the best. Last Starfighter, again, a movie I love. But I, again, it's not going to get in the top 10 of my favorite space movies. Yeah.
2: Okay, well, what about, like, these two are tough for me. Starship okay. Troopers and Enemy Mine.
3: Ooh. Well, I would just go with Starship Troopers. I want Verhoeven on the list. But I also would maybe yeah. think that Robocop would be the one that I would take over oh, Starship Troopers. I mean that's both, hard. Yeah, that's a hard one, uh, but that's good. All right, yeah. let's. Let, let, there's good
2: arguments for both. Actually, when you think about it, Starship Troopers I think is a great analogy for a trip to the moon. Those two mm. seem really serious, really similar.
3: Um, is there? I mean, I don't think there's anything to really be discussed when we talk about THX uh, 1138. I mean, it's interesting because it's THX, but it's it's not a. It's I don't even know if it's technically a space film. I guess I mean I. uh I don't know. I don't know. I, I, what
2: about uh, something that's like animated? Because a couple of the animated ones mm. that showed up were like Cowboy Bebop and Wally.
3: Now, look, a lot of love for Wally. Mm-hmm. A lot, and I was surprised by that, actually. Uh, not that I don't like Wally, but I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I think that Wally has to go, Wally definitely has to get into the. We're going to discuss it a little bit more because I'm making a list right now as we're talking of uh, yeah. stuff we're discussing a little bit more. Um, I'm down to just move that to the let's discuss it. Okay. Uh, but I can take off Black Hole. Um, I think we don't need Black Hole. I don't think we need Ad Astra. I don't think that we need. Oh, you. Sorry, I meant to go back to Cowboy Bebop. I've never seen Cowboy Bebop. Neither have I. All right. Want to put it in the conversation, the conversation starters?
2: I could. I mean, I know we should do. More animated films and more anime in general.
3: I mean, really, I would love to do at at least an,
2: some anime. Like, I would, I would love to opinion.
3: do an anime series and put that in there and do like yeah. Akira and stuff like that because I haven't seen those. That's uh, and
2: that makes me think there's an argument for doing a Pixar series, but that ooh. but then everybody
3: would cry, but then I would cry. Uh, uh, Spaceballs.
2: Oh, is it wrong that I'm tempted?
3: I know, me too. That's why that's why I kind of <laughs> brought it up. I was like, "Hmm, uh, Spaceballs is interesting. Baseball right, Spaceballs to be discussed." Could um, we do
2: like a spaceballs and a and a galaxy quest? How similar? They're very, very
3: different. A, very, they really very different. Very, 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 very different. Um, okay. Galaxy Quest is like a comedy Star Trek, which I would like to do to in the sense of that representation too, but. Because it would allow us to talk about a bunch of different stuff. But Spaceballs
2: is a comedy Star Wars. How different are they?
3: Well, Spaceballs, like, and I love it, is a Mad Magazine Star Wars. Okay. Like, uh, like, Galaxy Quest is a Star Trek movie that's funny. Okay. If that makes sense, you know, Spaceballs is is not a Star Wars movie. It's a, it is, it's Mad Magazine. It's great. It's Mel Brooks. Uh, I mean, I think Young Frankenstein. You, you you may be thinking Spaceballs is like Young Frankenstein is to Frankenstein, and that's not that. Okay. That okay. if that makes sense. That um, does
2: make sense actually. Thank you for
3: that. Uh, I would take The Martian and Hidden Figures off the list uh, because one is, I mean, Hidden Figures. I mean, maybe maybe Hidden Figures. I don't know. Maybe Hidden Figures actually. I, I maybe I was too too rough on that. The Mar- The Martian and Hidden Figures. It' would be the Martian and Moon for me, even though that doesn't really quite match up, but
2: yeah, I mean, if we did like a hardcore, pure science-y one, yeah I feel like I'm kind of more inclined to either go write stuff for Apollo 13 over the Martian?
3: Yes. Well, that's what I, yeah, okay, i'm I'm down with that. And then I would say, well, write stuff Apollo 13 hidden figures, because those mm. three are all very much about NASA.
2: That's true. you're right. I think we need at least one pure NASA pick.
3: Yes, right, one that's like very
2: about the work of NASA or an equivalent. If there's like a foreign film equivalent of like a good like of the Russian cosmonaut program or something, because I'm a big Gagarin head. But there, I have there's there is like a '50s one that's like a hybrid doc. But I, yeah, I think the right stuff for Apollo 13 or Hidden Figures, probably.
3: All right, I'm gonna throw down this next uh, batch of these are blockbusters. Okay, blockbusters that I feel like are. If we had to pick one, and I'm going to revisit a couple of the ones that we've talked about, okay? But the blockbusters are Alien, Close Encounters, Event (gasps) Horizon, Fifth Element, Armageddon, and Total Recall. Mm. Like that. Close
2: Encounters is hard, but I mean, I guess they don't, he doesn't, he leaves, but we don't see anything.
3: Yeah, he just gets on the ship. All right, so we can take that off for that. That's hard, though,
2: because wasn't that kicked off the original list? Ah, Oh, well, okay. I think that's so okay.
3: Goes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's okay. Total Recall, I love. And Armageddon, I love. Armageddon is, like, fun to do a Michael Bay, like, a big Bay movie. I don't think it's ever going to be one of the best. But, you know, I, I'm just putting them all together as far as, like, popcorn-y films. You know, but I would say, would you take, like, Armageddon versus Planet of the Apes? Oh, we already knocked off mm-hmm. Planet of the Apes. Sorry. We did,
2: we did, we did. Okay. I mean, I guess the question is, would you do Total Recall? Or Starship Troopers, which to me it's Starship
3: Troopers, hundred percent Starship Troopers. Okay, so the Starship Troopers is moving up. We're almost, we're almost out of this now uh, okay. to get to our final, like, real discussions. Um,
2: I mean, did okay. we just sort of lump in like Contact, Moon, and Interstellar all together? I put also- them
3: all together. I put okay. them all together in the, in the to have the discussion about. Yeah.
2: What about Crazy Imagination? I mean, you you mentioned the Fifth Element. It, that mm-hmm. makes me want to say Valerian. And the gazillion of a gazillion planets yes. just because I love the I love the imagination of that movie.
3: Well, would you go Valerian or would you go fifth element?
2: Well, I go fifth element for sure. Okay, I, just, yeah. I I always want to defend Valerian whenever I get a chance.
3: We did it on how did this get made, and I think the consensus was it makes no sense but more movies like this, which is I think uh you know, it, it it's so cool and visually amazing, but it doesn't yeah, like it's not quite fully realized in my opinion, but I really like it. I mean, I would um, say that
2: one of my favorite genres is it makes no sense, but very cool. More movies
3: like this. Uh, uh, I, believe me, me too. I'm all about it. <laughs> um, and then I'm going to throw out the, these three. As, well, in uh, that
2: cloud atlas. Is that in America? Is that, is that
3: Earthbound? Mm, or is that that's Earthbound, one? I believe. Is it? Okay. Yeah. All right. Here's my final three. And then I think we can kind of get into it a little bit more. Uh, Forbidden Planet. The Day the Earth oh. Stood Still and Barbarella.
2: Oh, interesting.
3: That's a little grouping that I've come up with, but I don't yeah. know if that's totally, you know, I mean, one's out of, one's an outlier, but.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, The Day the Earth Stood Still is all here, I think.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: Forbidden Planet and Barbarella, they're both so stylish. I mean, Forbidden Planet came up with a whole new sound of, of soundtrack. A whole new yeah. sound of scores. And Barbarella, I mean, I put Barbarella on and I never love it quite as much, but I had a Barbarella poster for the longest time in my childhood. I
3: know. Barbarella is like a better, Barbarella and like Flash Gordon live in that same world. I think I would do Flash Gordon. Oh, I don't know. Mm. It's yeah. I think Flash Gordon's more fun. I don't know.
2: Yeah, Barbarella is astonishing to watch. And I love me some Jane Fonda.
3: Yeah. I mean, she's amazing. (gasps) Always amazing.
2: I don't know. Forbidden Planet, though.
3: All right, tell me if our list is. I'll read you what our list is right now um, as you guys are listening to us kind of go through your suggestions. And if there's anything that's missing, we, Amy and I always reserve the right to add in our thoughts, but I think this is a pretty good list. Here's a list that I have mm-hmm. Right Stuff, Apollo 13, Hidden Figures, Gravity, Interstellar, Contact, Solaris, Sunshine, Alien, Event Horizon, The Fifth Element, Galaxy Quest, uh, Starship Troopers, Wally. Uh, Spaceballs, although I think Spaceballs is off, Moon, Forbidden Planet, and Barbarella. Like, those are some of them, uh, just to make sure them as being it right, Cowboy Bebop I put to our anime series. I think Spaceballs we just talked about. I don't think there's a world where we do a miniseries with Spaceballs and That's Galaxy right. Quest. Uh, Total Recall lost yeah. out the Starship Troopers. And, I want to get and, rid of Interstellar. Okay, I would like to get rid of that as okay. well. All right, so now we are down to a smaller list. Um People. All right, now let's talk about the real favorites. Like the real favorites that people said. I feel like Apollo thirteen really, Apollo thirteen contact, and um and galaxy Quest were the ones that I saw a lot. Like those are the ones that seem to be very highly regarded. Um, yeah, I, I saw them know. a lot.
2: And the right stuff. I feel like I saw the right stuff yes. in equal numbers. I'd also we, say I saw a lot of alien aliens. Mm. And a lot of Solaris, and but in a lot of did we, did we say contact? I, I know I saw
3: a ton of contact. Yes, I saw a lot of contact as well. Yeah. So I want to kind of continue this conversation a little bit online where we kind of uh, like we can kind of continue these battles a little bit. Like, would you go alien or aliens? Let's see what you think. Um, you would you like to see Apollo 13 or the right stuff? Maybe those are two good ones to to start us off with a little uh, a yeah, little battle. I think
2: yeah, I think like Apollo thirteen and the right stuff feel like a good combination. Should we throw Hidden Figures in there too? Or did oh, yeah. did the love for those two? I think kind of outweigh it.
3: It seemed like it outweighed it. I was putting Hidden Figures it in did because it seemed like it outweighed it. Yeah, I, I feel yeah. like we're yeah. So all right, let's let's get that and now, um, and we could talk about Hidden Figures in in those films, I guess as That's well. That's true. Uh, um, all right, so. This is the list that we have. It's not a bad list. Um, we're going to dole out our, our miniseries in a little bit of a different way because we want to have the conversation going. So, Amy, would you like to pick our initial film for our, I guess, our second official week in space?
2: Yes. Yes. Can I make just like a bold decision from yeah. where we've narrowed it? Yeah. hmm Okay.
3: Galaxy Quest. I was gonna say that (laughs) as my pick. All right, great. I love it. We're gonna start off with Galaxy Quest. That's great. In the far reaches of the galaxy,
1: a civilization is under siege. We are all that is left. They've searched the universe for a leader. Stay tuned for scenes from next week's Galaxy Quest. Never give up. Never surrender. You will save us. What they got... Never give up and never surrender. We're struggling TV actors.
3: You are our last hope. Where's my limo?
1: <laughs> Okie dokie. And they're about to put on a command performance. Eight million light years away.
0: We are actors, not astronauts. You are
1: our protectors.
3: And then... And Amy, I'm going to pick... One of the first ever DVDs that I bought in a snap case. I'm talking about Contact. A movie that I bought on DVD back when DVDs needed to be flipped over because there was too much information. That and Goodfellas were the flippers. So uh, I am going to enjoy going back to it. I remember Gary Busey's son is in it and is pretty amazing. And I don't remember much more than that. So I'm excited to <laughs> to uh, to kind of get back in. But obviously, people were really excited about that. So let's start us off there. Stay tuned as we release more and more uh, films from our space uh, series. But we want you to weigh in on Right Stuff versus Apollo 13 and Alien versus Aliens. And that yeah, will be maybe a part alien, of the Aliens show. and
2: Starship Troopers, like the aggro ones, like aggro okay, great. alien fighting.
3: I like it. Alien aliens and starship troopers. Your vote matters.